Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine, and this is a special edition of our podcast. Donald Trump has gone to extraordinary ends to diminish, disempower, and smear Rashida Tlaib. The president has been ranting and raving about the Democratic congresswoman from Michigan since she took office earlier this year. He has lied about her. He has misconstrued and mischaracterized her statements and actions. And now, the president has intervened to prevent Tlaib from making an official visit along with Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, to Israel and the West Bank. Under pressure from Trump, the Israeli government last week blocked the travel plans of the Congresswoman. Tlaib has pushed back mightily, declaring as the daughter of Palestinian immigrants and one of the first two Muslim women ever to serve in the U.S. House that, quote, when I won, it gave the Palestinian people hope that someone will finally speak the truth about the inhumane conditions, end quote. And so she has. Amidst all the wrangling with Trump, Americans have learned a little bit about Rashida Tlaib, about her family ties to the West Bank, about her Palestinian grandmother. But there is so much more to this lawyer, legislator, civil rights, and civil liberties activist, mother and daughter. This edition of Next Left repeats our interview with Rashida Tlaib because we thought people should have an opportunity to get to know her better. Rashida Tlaib, thank you for joining us on Next Left. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You you come out of one of my favorite cities politically in the whole country. Oh, I and love Detroit, too. <laughs> Detroit and Wayne County. I'm not going to just give oh, you Detroit. Yes. I want to go into yes, down into Dearborn, which is not quite in your district, no, right? No, I have Dearborn Heights, which is a neighboring city, but I only have half of Dearborn Heights. But yeah, Wayne County. I'm a Wayne County girl. I had the chance when I was a very young reporter to travel the country with Nelson Mandela when he made his first trip to the U.S. after being released. His great desire, which did indeed happen, was to go visit uh, Dearborn and go to Local 600, the UAW local. (laughs) And uh, he believed that the unions, I think it's fair to speak for him and say that the unions in Detroit had been among the first in the country that had, had spoken up about apartheid and said, it has to be different. And... And I think that's a good way of beginning because you really come out of Detroit politics, right? And it's that politics. It's that being way ahead of the curve on economic and social and racial justice issues. Yeah. I mean, if you look at any movement, the ones that really transformed our nation started in Detroit. And it's not just the labor rights movement, but every corner is a reminder of the civil rights movement. Uh, I mean, I grew up learning about Grace Lee Boggs and uh, Mary Mahaffey, and I mean, all of these incredible women who uh, really led huge fights uh, against not only poverty and injustices in that way, but also even on world politics and on just the basic right to, to human rights. And even to this day, I always tell people, you know, it wasn't just my mom. If you grew up in Detroit, you have mothers everywhere. Uh, every corner, like there's a mother that is raising you, is uh, teaching you to be unapologetic and strong. Uh, I mean, I remember black mothers in Detroit telling my mother, no, 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 you don't let anybody talk to you like that. You speak up. Like even teaching my mother, who's a new immigrant, to always be strong and be powerful and never to be silent. When your mom was a, a young immigrant, and you were a very young girl, you would sometimes translate for her, but not because she didn't speak English. 
It yes. was just that you'd help her. Absolutely. Uh, so I was her translator until I was 12. I remember going to uh, Sears and my mom would always, I mean, if you have an immigrant mom, I think all of them have this similarity and that they want to know how much something costs when it's 20 or 30% off. But they always, you know, I feel in many ways the self-check areas now that you see in department stores are because of people like my mother <laughs> who constantly need to know how much things cost. Uh, and so I would go up to the counter and my mom would be next to me and I would only translate what my mother said, not what the cashier said, but remember this one moment at Sears where the woman was just so loud and she's like, well, she needs to speak English. And I said, ma'am, and I was 12. It's like, do you, do you see that I'm not translating, tra translating what you're saying to her? I'm only translating what she wants to tell you because she doesn't want to speak English because so many people have made her feel less than because of her accent or she's, you know, it became somewhat of a phobia for her. Uh, I even see it still happening to her sometimes where she closes up and, and if you ever hear her, she speaks perfect English, but she'll, you know, her, her throat gets tightened up a little bit. She tells me she just can't speak um, because people yelled at her so many times. I think, you know, being a child of immigrants, there's incredible uh, hardships that you go through that no one else truly understands in, until you live it. Um, but I also think being the eldest of 14 was something um, that probably really shaped the person that I am today. I've been taking care of people all my life. They probably helped me be the public servant and the kind of fighter that I am than anything. No degree, no amount of uh, even the mentors that I've had, even the people that I got exposed to could match up to being the eldest of 14. Again, all the challenges, everything, uh, it always kind of landed in my lap and I had to always help my mother and my father through it. Yeah. Uh, another member of Congress, Raul Grijalva, his dad got a union job and his dad spoke English, but not well. And so when Raul was like 10 or 11, had to go to every union meeting to help his dad take notes and translate and things like that. And I actually think that experience is a, it's a way of, of learning to assert yourself and be present in this adult world in an outspoken way. I think we care more because we see something that we can connect with. And it doesn't, you don't have to, you know, for when, when I see a resident and they're going through something, I don't know how, but I, it reminds me of my mother uh, and what my mother went through. But yeah, I remember filling out forms. I remember actually teaching my mom like about homework and what that was. You know, she only went up to eighth grade education. My father only fourth grade education. So a lot of the things that I was experiencing for the first time, she was also experiencing for the first time and being exposed to for the first time. My mentor, Steve Tabachman, always says, you know, you're always so worried about, well, I don't know enough about this issue. And I don't know. He goes, you know what people care about, Rashida, when they meet you, that they, they, what they get a sense is how you make them feel. And the fact that you actually do care more than the others, you know, that maybe want to serve uh, them in Congress. And that always gave me a sense of confidence uh, that if I'm staying rooted and grounded in community and the challenges and hardships of everyday people in my district, then I'll be able to thrive here and I'll be able to do good for them. You also had a pretty amazing political education because uh, obviously you went to law school and you, you worked in the legislature. Some eventually got elected to the legislature, but you also worked with a remarkable organization in Detroit, the Maurice Sugar Law Center, which is, I mean, we don't have enough time to, to describe every aspect of it, but it was this intersectional 
legal endeavor <laughs> that brought together race and class and gender and immigrant status and all of that. It was a, I mean, I, I think it's a remarkable place of training. I was recruited to be on the board of directors of the Sugar Law Center. I was the youngest member and I was working at a nonprofit organization at the time. And I think I may have just finished law school, but I had heard of them. But getting in there and being among giants like Bill Goodman and Julie Hurwitz, these human beings who, you know, as a young girl sitting there, you know, listening to them talk about international human rights and we should we should look at the UN articles and and people talking about police brutality in a way that brought in the history of it, uh, the rooted kind of structural racism. So for me, it was like going to class to learn. We brought in history. We brought in that institutional knowledge, I think, that is so critically important and has been missing in sometimes in these spaces. I, I could tell you moments where I had these, aha, oh my God, you're right. This is happening to people. Uh, and when I was done in the legislature, that's where I went to go work. And I joined the team and uh, John Philo and Tony Eggert and all these incredible human beings, again, uh, advocates on the ground. I mean, we sued the governor because he was denying unemployment benefits. Uh, and we found out it was because they put a computer system in that was denying people benefits, saying they committed fraud. And we found out it wasn't true. And we won. And uh, we empowered uh, got thousands of people. And you were there with Jewish, Muslim Polish-American, African-American lawyers, all profoundly accomplished people. In a sense, you got a chance to see what could happen, right? Yeah. What, when people from across racial lines, across religious lines, ethnic lines. But historically, that was Detroit, and it always has been. So I don't know anything different. I, I, that's the incredible thing about Detroit, is that, again, always people come together based on values on missions to free people from whatever injustice is, is at the forefront in this country. And we all just work together and it's so organic and it's so real. I wish we can mimic it all over the all over the nation. But yeah, it was such an honor and privilege. And they continue to text and email me and always check up on me. We'll be right back after these messages. Have you visited the nation's new shop? At shop.thenation.com, you'll find resistance-themed artwork, nation logo totes, mugs and hats, books and more. All proceeds benefit the nation's journalism, including this podcast. That's shop.thenation.com. And thanks for your support. The biggest problems facing the world don't respect political boundaries, but are our politicians and other leaders up to the task of solving them? Join host Louisa Savage and political journalists from across the world as they unpack the answer to that question on Politico's Global Translations podcast. The first season examines who will write global rules for trade, for new technologies like 5G and AI, and for fighting climate change. Search for Politico's Global Translations wherever you're listening to this show. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm talking with Representative Rashida Tlaib. You came out here to Congress with all these ideals and all these values and all this experience, and almost immediately there was a desire to pigeonhole you. 
right? To say, oh, wow, she's one of the first two Muslim women elected to Congress. Oh, she does. She's not very complimentary toward the president. And suddenly there was this, this effort to to put you into a, a very small box. Yeah, yeah, you know, more and more as I'm here, it's four months now, and one of the things that I realize is when people don't have a policy agenda, they don't have a plan for the American people, it's easier to just go bully someone and target them. Women of color were pretty new to this space. We're easy targets because People easily will fear us if they just tell people, be scared. She's Palestinian. You should be scared. She's also Muslim. Be scared. <laughs> and that's because, you know, the, the GOP, the individual one in the White House is, you know, feeding into hate because that's all they have right now. They don't have a plan. They don't know what they're going to do about infrastructure, the healthcare crisis, the immigration humanitarian crisis that we're facing right now in our country. It's pretty unprecedented what we've seen in our country. All that has been distracted by attacks on people like myself and Ilhan Omar. And it, it is something that I hope, you know, many of my colleagues here will push up against. We can't continue to enable that approach to public office, that approach to, to even leadership and trying to move our country in towards a positive direction around, you know, again, shared values around dignity and we all need access to opportunities to thrive. Start with that. You know, this is an institution that is very much broken right now and very much uh, in need of an injection of, you know, looking at real human impact of doing nothing. The fact that there's a sense of urgency for me and many of us, this beautiful rainbow of women that are coming in, we're looking at each other. Many of us are moms. We like fixing things. We want to do something now. And people here are like, that. well, that's just not how it is. Sometimes I feel like I'm like a six-year-old. You know, the six-year-old always asks, why, why, why? That's how I feel. I'm like, well, why? Why can't we move this? Insulin, the access to insulin is almost non-existent for the most vulnerable. I had a mother testifying committee losing her six-year-old child because she couldn't get access to insulin. I mean, it just, it brought me to tears. And another son who talked about how a corporation like Johnson & Johnson didn't tell people and didn't share with them that the, that the powder, the baby powder, uh, was cancerous mm -hmm. until it was too late. And all he wanted is Congress to uplift his mother and have her legacy be that story that, you know, doing nothing, this is what it looks like. You lose a mother too early. And for us... That's what we want to talk about. <laughs> That's what we want to uplift in this space. But instead, you know, they want to focus on my faith. And it strikes me that you did accomplish something. It just We're meeting on a day when you've been all over the news. And what was striking was that uh, you gave an interview in which you spoke very movingly about your ancestral experience as a Palestinian, the concern about creating a safe haven for Jews after World War II. And people immediately tried to demonize you, to, to make you horrible things, right? To call you an anti-Semite, to, to say all these things. What was interesting is, in this circumstance, an awfully lot of prominent Democrats immediately stepped up. They didn't, there wasn't a caution there. And, and I'm wondering whether maybe we are moving, right? That there is this moment of, of realization. 
you know, if it wasn't for friends and people like uh, the, the, the founders and the leaders of leaving the Sugar Law Center, they always said, you know, we've been through tougher times, Rashida. We've been through these kinds of moments. You have to find uh, these moments of light, though, in this time of darkness and this painful time. And it is. It's very painful. And I do think the light is that uh, people are finally speaking truth and truth to power and pushing up against hate. I think together we can fight this, but only together. And we'll be stronger afterwards. And one of the interesting things is lost so much to the way the media covers so many things is that you ran for Congress on a platform of civil rights and civil liberties. You have you had this incredibly bold, extensive, detailed plan uh, for how to make democracy real for everybody. I created four neighborhood service centers. In the first four months, I did 153 appropriations requests. I've met with every single mayor on the ground. I have started this series. This is kind of a community conversation series throughout the district. I'm staying as rooted and grounded in, in the work at home. That's what I bring here. Every time I'm in committee hearings, you know, I always remind my legislative staff that have worked here in D.C. for so long, and I love them. They're so talented and brilliant and beautiful. And I'm mentoring them that we have to connect back to the district because some of them will never, ever be able to afford to come here or have access to this space where there's so much power to change uh, their situation at home. So when I put these questions together, when I, when I come to this space, I say, how can we bring them into the room? So the community that raised me, you know, raised me to be courageous, unapologetic. So there's always this constant support at home that is very uplifting. But I, you know, I think the neighborhood service centers is going to change people's lives today. I don't want my residents to wait until I pass universal health care to get access to health care. Just the other week, we had this woman for over a year been waiting for her social security benefits. And, you know, she's hearing impaired. She paid into the system and she was due all this money. She was almost going to lose her home, everything, her, her car. Uh, and it took us the power of this office to pick up the phone and advocate on her behalf. And we were able to get her $38,000 in back social security payments. And to me, it just every time that happens, every time we are able to get access to resources, these everyday challenges that my residents go through, the power of this, the letterhead, the power of this office, the power to convene, all of that is as critically important as any bill that I would introduce and try to push forward. That is going to be able to be the one area that I'm going to be able to really try to combat poverty in my district, combat the challenges in my district. And it's interesting thing as we talk here, because there's all this controversy, right? And I wonder, do you get frustrated? And because you clearly love the nitty gritty of it, you know, like helping somebody get their social security, helping. It's you know, being the eldest of 14. I, you got to solve it's these just, problems. It's just who I am. Yeah. But it's got to be frustrating because, because when people are literally lying about you, to silence you, it, and you want to work on fundamental issues. It's is this how, in so many cases, good people are ground down. It is worth it when I go home and see my two children's faces, my two boys. They are a constant reminder. I mean, even when I won, I mean, I showed Adam that bullies don't win. That this president could say all kinds of hateful things about Muslims, but look, your mother won in a district that is majority 
uh, non-Muslim community. They didn't share the same faith or ethnicity as I am, and they elected a fellow American. I mean, that is the part of the American story nobody wants to talk about and nobody wants to highlight. But my God, if it's happening at home in Detroit, <laughs> you know, I tell people they sent a historic member to Congress again. Uh, they made history again. They are leading the charge in saying, no matter someone's background, no matter someone's faith, you can be a member of Congress. All the movement towards white nationalism and the white supremacy movement in our country won't stop us from from doing good and from, from uplifting um, and, and sending someone like myself here. We change the world, not even just the nation, by having somebody like me and saying to a little child anywhere in this world and saying the possibility of someone like me serving in the United States Congress. That alone was this bright light that came across the world. People were so inspired by it. And uh, I keep telling people it's the district. It's, it's, it's the county I was raised in. This is what we do. My district, uh, you know, some of my residents are like, it's great you're Muslim, but you're different. We like that you don't take corporate PAC money, that you're really at the forefront. And I served six years uh, in the state legislature, and I took on billionaires, uh, took on corporate greed. That's why I wanted to come here. Uh, And I don't like bullies. It's not just the president. I don't like corporate bullies. I don't like people that try to taint our democracy. It infuriates me. And I keep saying, how do we take back our democracy? We take back our democracy by sending people that are not going to sell us out, by sending people that are going to stay rooted in the community. And I wrote a book about impeachment, which you gave to every freshman member of Congress. Um, Such a great gift. Did you see? I I, did saw the note. You you should know how it went down. So it was orientation week. And, uh, you're, you know, all of a sudden I was getting, you know, uh, Speaker Pelosi sent, you know, something to, I think, chocolates and, and every person that was uh, in, in some sort of leadership role was sending stuff to our hotel. So it would come in and there's stuff right already on our, uh, in our hotel room. And I said, can I do that? And, and my chief of staff said, sure, I'll find out. I said, well, I want, I, this is my gift. And, and the interesting thing, it's actually a book by John Boniface and yes. some other excellent lawyers. I got to write an introduction to it, but I, we were quite amused by that. And, and I want to close off. One of the things that you've stood out for is raising the issue of impeachment. But I think it is important that people understand that it isn't about hating a man. It's very much rooted in what we were just talking about, taking on the bully, but also about the rule of law, about rules. And and I've been struck in this Congress that a young, new member is the one who has come and understood the Constitution and the process. I came here to put country first. And if you put country first, you put our democracy first, we will always do the right thing by our country. And for those that are always looking at political strategies and so-called polling and all those other things that, to me, sometimes will not lead us in the right direction in history. Uh, we've seen it over and over again. This is a president. I mean, character flaws aside, and I consistently say that uh, because that's what distracts us is his character flaws. Put that aside. Put his characteristics aside and, and some of his comments aside and look at his actions. After he took the oath of office and said he was going to uphold the United States Constitution, he has not upheld it for himself personally. There's anti-corrupt laws in the United States Constitution. They were there before I was born, before he was born. They were put there specifically for somebody like Donald Day Trump, it says that you have to completely 
completely separate yourself, completely walk away from any conflict of interest. So your your foreign investments, your foreign businesses, you, you can't have that connection or tie because it very much corrupts the process, corrupts our democracy. I mean, it's we have right now the first time ever in history of our country, you know, all 44 presidents did this. They divest, they completely divested from their business interests. I mean, Carter sold his farm. You saw people putting it in a true blind trust and walking away from it because they understood the importance uh, of this institution, importance of our democracy and protecting our democracy. Right now you have a president, a lawless president, that is running his corporation out of the Oval Office, that is kind of an upgraded version of pay to play, I say. You know, it may not be boxes and handing over money, but the fact is we have corporations that want to merge with others that are spending 100, T-Mobile spent $195,000 at the Trump Hotel in D.C. in the same breath that they're trying to lobby the federal government to be able to approve a merger with Sprint. And you have foreign governments like Saudi Arabia, $270,000 at the Trump Hotel in D.C. And, you know, again, if you look at how this administration also uses the Trump organization, his businesses interchangeably with the Trump administration, I don't think people realize that this president is putting profit before people, is that this is about the bottom line. And to me, it's the ultimate, ultimate way to destroy our democracy if we don't stop the corruption and we don't allow this access to the corridor of power in this way. Again, you know, the sacrifice that he had to take in wanting to become president is that he had to walk away from it. He had to uphold the Constitution. And every single day that he's been in office, he has not done so. And the oldest of 14 kids, child of immigrants, woman from Wayne County, <laughs> is taking on the president of the United States. And our Constitution gives you equal standing. To, to step up. I think that's a pretty good American story. It is. <laughs> it's not a bad tale. Now, before we go, I want to I wanna just ask you, you come out of the best music city in America. That's right. Without a question, there's no doubt. Like, I know politics well enough to know that I would not dare ask you who the best Detroit artist is, but what's rocking you? What are you listening to? Oh, do I don't do? know. I, I, there's been a number of artists. I mean, it's funny. I, I'm not one of those people even remember like who's singing it, but it like resonates with me. But you know, I am old school and I grew up in the eighties. And if you ever talk to my two boys, you know, my son one time asked me, what's that? I said, that's Prince. And uh, he's like, who's that? I was like, yeah, mommy grew up with listening to Prince. But I, I remember growing up with those artists, um, you know, Lionel Richie and, you know, these incredible artists in the 80s. That's the thing about some of us from the from Motown is we kind of attach to these artists that we can grow up and you just can't let go of them. Yeah, Smokey Robinson's still out there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Rashida Thank Tlaib. You so You've much. been a wonderful person to give us this time on these busy days. Thank you so much. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Devoy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts.
Join me on the Nation Cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th, sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijin Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board. <laughs> 